All right, so as we look at this passage this morning, I want to begin with a question because we're talking about uh, displaying the resurrection to those outside the church and inside the church. But before we get to that, we kind of have to, to consider what is it that most influences how we think about those two groups of people? Because here's the truth. Every one of you have opinions about those two groups of people. And we could probably even break it up into varying opinions about types of people outside the church and types of people inside the church right? And so it's important for us to ask what most influences us in this regard because it affects whether or not we think those people are valuable and engaging in the first place, right? So for many of us, for those who have a different political opinion than you, what has most informed your views of those people? Facebook, Right, that's a that's a confession, uh, and you can't take communion this morning. I'm sorry, um, and so uh, no, it's not true. You can't. So um, what 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 I want to say to us is, and I want to warn us about something. Uh, this is a mathematical concept that I'm going to use in a philosophical way. Um, is this thing called the law of the excluded middle? And so if you think about a bell curve, right, uh, the two tail ends of the bell curve are least representative of what that population of people or set or whatever it may be truly is. And what I want to suggest to you is that many of you may be being influenced by the tail ends of the bell curve, the worst of the worst, those who scream the loudest, and therefore you're forming an opinion about those who are in the middle excluding what they're really about, And so, as God's people, we should, of all people, strive the hardest to truly understand where people are coming from, not for the purpose of being right, not for the purpose of um, proving that they are wrong, but more for the purpose of seeing them become brothers and sisters in Christ. Because what I've discovered in much of what I, in engaging the world, as I once did as an artist, as I once did as a physical therapist, is that everybody seems to be longing for something similar. They're longing for hope and joy and peace in some form or fashion. They either want to get it by making you suffer, or they want to get it by developing their own safety and security. There's all kinds of different ways in which we go about that. And so if we don't recognize that we are biased, we're even biased toward those inside the church, right? We have opinions about those inside the church based on experiences that we've had. We all have, and some, if you've been in church for more than, than 13 seconds, you probably have some sort of opinion about the church and people in the church. And those opinions, again, may not be, they, they may not be accurate because you haven't taken the time to truly get to know those individuals and what, what makes them tick. Um, and so uh, I, I've had, um, well, I won't, I'll, I'm going to leave that example out. I, I don't want to get into that one. But slightly, uh, I've had the, the privilege of, of, of being in groups with people who are on both extremes within the PCA. And, um, and they all, they, they do, they love Jesus. And they're trying to figure it out the best they can. They really are. Um, and they have really specific opinions about how that's going to happen. And oftentimes lop off a huge portion of the Bible in so doing. And uh, that doesn't mean I get it right. I, I'm looking through a glass darkly as well. But, but I, oftentimes we're talking past each other. And if we just sit down and have a meal together and hear what the other person's heart is, we might realize that we're closer than we think. Just to use an example. And so... What influences you? What is shaping 
how you think about those outside the church and those inside the church because you can't get really to the application of the resurrection and be of benefit to either one of those groups if you haven't thought that through, okay? <clears throat> so as Paul is concluding his letter, um, he's wrapping up this large, larger section on how to live out the resurrection. And, um, and, and really what he's doing is he's answering something that he said to them earlier. So I want to go back to chapter 1 for just a brief moment and read again what his heart is for the Colossian saints. And then let's recognize that his, um, what he's saying in, in Colossians 3 and 4 is actually the, the answer or the way in which they can live this out. Okay, so, so if you would hear verses 9 through 14 from chapter 1, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his being God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so chapters 3 and 4 is essentially his exposition of what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the redemption that God has purchased for us in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. And so notice that as we wrap up, he now talks about those outside the church and those inside the church, but he's already laid the firm foundation for you. Have, there's things you've got to put to death. There's things you have to put on. The way that you live in your family has a supreme impact on how those outside the church are going to listen to you, how those inside the church are going to be encouraged by you. He's talked about how you work, vocation, right? Uh, think about how devastating it is that most people, when they see a business card with an ichthus fish on it, that's the little fish uh, that some of you have on the back of your car, which you might want to scrape off depending on how you drive. Uh, and when they see that on a business card, so often they think, I'm throwing that right in the trash. These people are the worst business people I've ever dealt with in my life. Now, that's not always, again, remember, the law of excluded middle, they're doing the same thing that we do, right? They're taking the tail, tail ends of the bell curves on either side and making a gross overgeneralization. However, there should be no data points. There just shouldn't be. Now, we're not going to be perfect, but we ought to strive in all things to glorify the Lord our God. And so um, now what he's coming to is on the foundation of all those things, Christ's work and resurrection, and then you putting to death certain things, you putting on certain things, and how you live in your family and work. Now, now we can talk about reaching those outside the church. And so if you would hear what he has to say in verses um, two through six, this is chapter four. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may speak it clear, which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now here in, in verse 2, what he's doing is he's pointing us back to the very beginning of Colossians chapter 3 where he said, look to the right hand of the Father where Christ is seated on high, not to the things of the earth. 
Let, let, let your views on things be shaped by what Christ has done, is doing, and will do. So be shaped by the gospel. And so he's, when he says continue steadfastly in prayer, it goes back to something we had said earlier about the application of the resurrection, which is that, that it's to be active, right? You cannot be passive. You cannot be a disciple who is passive and think that leaving your Bible in the back of the car so the sun will make it look well-worn does not make you a better biblical scholar. It doesn't work that way. And so, so you have to be active in pursuing opportunities to grow in the gospel. If you're not, then you're failing at a very fundamental level that's not going to make God angry with you. What it's going to do is rob you of having your faith matured and being able to encourage those inside the church. It's going to rob you of something very important, which is experiencing union with Christ. And so this is active and it's perpetual because, because Paul recognizes that we are a mix still of saint sinner. We are not yet perfected. And so we will struggle. We will at times need encouragement. We will fail. And so he's saying, be, be steadfast in prayer. And he says this, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, one of the, the themes that we probably have not cultivated near enough during this series of Colossians, you just, we just don't have time to unpack everything, is how often he speaks of gratitude. And we have mentioned before, I think it may have been David Garland or one of the, the New Testament scholars, that they said one of the chief hallmarks of any Christian is their gratitude, is, is their ability to give thanks. And so for us, it's a helpful, that's a helpful thing to think through because some of us are not very thankful for what we have. We're not very thankful for what Christ has done for us. We're very, what have you done for me lately type mindset. We're not in it for the long haul. Um, and so, so we need to be careful that we, that, we, that, we, that we don't miss. One of the things that Paul's saying is very important to know that you are walking in the power of the resurrection. Are you thankful? Is gratitude uh, something that you are regularly able to practice? And if not, are you going to be active in pursuing and cultivating that attitude since you know that it is important? So he says, be watchful with all thanksgiving. Now, this being watchful can kind of mean one of, of two things, and maybe it means both. He could be hearkening back to when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says to the disciples to be watchful, be mindful, right? He could be saying, make sure that you're looking at the world. And he also could be speaking to the necessity to watch for where God is um, is answering his promises and prayer. Watch for where God is intersecting in this world so that, that, and think about how that fuels us to continue steadfastly in prayer, how that fuels us to continue to come to him as he is faithful to respond. Now, here's where we have to be careful because I think this is where many a young faith gets shipwrecked. I hear this quite a bit. And it's sincere. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and God didn't do anything. Uh, it could be the death of a, of a family member. It could be a longing for um, uh, getting into a certain school. It could be a longing for a spouse. All of those, by the way, are not bad longings. But so often our faith gets shipwrecked by the fact that, that God doesn't answer in the way that we've determined. And so we have to be really careful here that, that you also are encouraged and know how to deal with when God says No. Or God answers differently than what you would have wanted. Because you are the creature, he is the creator. 
And so often what I've seen, uh, being a little bit of an older guy now that I'm 45 and less of hair and more of girth, um, that, that I've seen God uh, be incredibly good. And there's enough data points for me to trust when I pray that, that the Lord, his answer is going to be that which is the most redemptive. I may not always understand why. Uh, I may get angry like Habakkuk did and say, I think this is a terrible idea, but I always try to do what Habakkuk did, which is say, I'll stand my watch for you because I've seen you be good in the past. I'm gonna stand my watch for you and see how you're gonna work this out because right now I can't see it. Which the scripture tells us we see through a glass darkly, right? We, we, always, we already know we're finite. We can't understand it all. So we with humility must in thanksgiving, come to this, being watchful. Watchful for where the Lord is at work and things are breaking through. That will encourage us and, and, and help us to continue as Paul commands us here. Then he shifts and he says, at the same time, also pray for me. And notice what he doesn't ask for. Now, here's what's really interesting about this because remember, there are situations in which people have been delivered from prison, right? The book of Acts has a couple of different examples. And so would that have been a bad thing for Paul to pray for? No, but he doesn't. He doesn't say pray that the Lord would deliver me from prison. In fact, what does he ask for? He asks for open doors, not for him to leave prison, but for him to preach the gospel that, by the way, got him in prison in the first place, which if he's going to continue to preach the gospel, what's the likelihood he's going to be released anytime soon? And so here Paul is displaying his heart for those outside the church. He understands the purpose for which he was created, even though he is suffering, even though this is not the circumstance in which he would have designed for himself, he receives it as gift from God and continues to do that which he knows to do. Now, here's how I think that that's important for you to hear. There are many of you in here who are in some sort of transitionary phase. You're in a situation that you would not have designed for yourself, right? You wouldn't have picked it. This is not what you would have designed it to do. And you really want God to answer a certain prayer that you may have, right? And you're waiting. So how do you wait? Do you wait faithfully? Do you wait patiently? Do you wait actively, which is what I would encourage. All of those things should be, but you should continue to do that which you know you ought to do in the gospel. You should continue. Whatever circumstance you're in that God has sovereignly placed you in, though you may not understand it, though you may not like it, though it may not be terribly encouraging to you, continue to do that which you were designed to do until the Lord in his sovereign timing, either delivers you or calls you to himself. So often what I see, this is my own tendency, by the way, because I hate stuff being in transition, just so you know. If you didn't know that about me, you need to know that about me. I hate it with a purple passion. Um, I can't stand unanswered questions. I can't stand stuff to be unresolved, right? Like I can't, it, it just eats me up. Um, and, so, and so I know of what I'm speaking. Oftentimes when I'm in transition, when I am not getting the answer that I want, what I'll do is go into a funk and I'll try to withhold from God worship, which by the way, think about this for just a second. How does that encourage God? How does a tantrum encourage any uh, deity, any parent to actually give the child what they want? And yet I, I keep trying it as if, no, I think it's gonna work this time. 
I think this time God's going to respond because, because, you know, I, I can throw a pretty good tantrum. And, and God needs me. I'm one of the few guys that sings on Sunday mornings now, so he really needs me. And so, uh, and so, and I can't sing, which is sad, but, but um, that's not true. And so what, what, what the Lord has taught me in sanctification, and I am still wrestling to try to understand and do well, is continue to do the, the good work of the gospel while in transition, while not knowing, while not having the answer I would like. And Paul gives us a beautiful example of that. In fact, he shows such a heart for those outside the church. He says, let, it, let a door open so that I can declare the mystery of Christ, which we know the mystery of Christ is redemption, not just redemption for anybody, but redemption for all tongues, tribes, and nations, which is so mysterious to us that God would pick some of the people he picks. I'm as astonished as you are that I'm up here. And so, so God, in his great grace, continues to open doors and provide opportunities in, in, in the middle of difficult circumstances. And Paul's desire is, just help me speak it clear. Just help me say it clear, um, which is how I ought to speak. I don't want to muddy the water. I want them to hear the gospel, even though it may cost him his life. And then he turns back to them and he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now, that right there, uh, we could spend a lot of time on that. I don't know that we always make the best use of our time, hence the mention of Facebook and other things, other ways in which we try to communicate with people uh, and build relationships. Um, uh, we, we are terribly guilty, I think, at, at, at times of not really thinking through how to best use uh, our, our, our relationships with our neighbors and coworkers and things of that. You've got to put time and effort and thought into it. It's not all necessarily organic, and you have to be cultivated and developed, because notice what he says. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your, look, I want you to hear this. This verse is so important for us as Reformed people. Let your speech sometimes be gracious. Is that what he said? What did he say? Help me out, Joe. Yeah, always. Let your speech always be gracious or full of grace. And he then goes on to say, season with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now listen, um, if, if you want to drive an outsider way far away from the church, you go trying to come at them without grace. And this season with salt, um, as, as we don't quite understand the term here, but in, in for those who would be of a Greek mind, this would have meant with winsomeness and wit. So what it means is, is that you're, you're so careful, and I know some of y'all are thinking, Cameron, I think you need to read that verse a lot for yourself uh, toward those inside the church. I might actually do pretty good on those outside. It's the inside I probably should work on. But, but to speak with, with graciousness is to so care about the other person, to so get that you are firm in who you are in Christ. This is, there's, as, as Schaefer would often say, there's no argument. There's no argument because what's true happens to be true. We can argue about gravity if you like, but it's still having an impact on you. And just like gravity is the gospel, it is a t capital T truth. And so Christ did come, Christ did die, Christ did rise again, Christ did ascend, Christ is coming back. 
Why do we act as if none of that's true? And why do we act as if there's anything that is not worth saving by the way we speak to people? Like we're having some sort of argument. Instead, what we can do is know that the sovereign Lord has ordained that circumstance, that conversation. So what that gives you is the freedom to speak with grace and wit and winsomeness. You don't have to be on the attack. You don't, and notice, all of Paul's examples where he speaks to outsiders, he's so careful. Uh, If you go through the book of Acts and look at the different times where he speaks in the different places, he he is so winsome and he's so careful, even when he's being attacked, which oftentimes, where'd the attack come from? The Jews. Now, also, the, the, the pagans attacked him as well, but oftentimes it was the Jews that would attack first because they didn't like his wit and winsomeness and his graciousness to those outside the church. And so Paul here is saying um, that we need to answer the questions that people are actually asking. So what does that require? How often have you, let's be honest, how many of you have ever answered a question that someone wasn't asking? And how'd it go? It always goes well, doesn't it? They always go, you know what? I'm glad you're my external conscience. I so appreciate you knowing me better than I know myself. Um, and so, so this, a big part of this is us developing the relationship. This is the making of the best use of our time. Develop the relationship enough where you can hear what it is that they are most concerned about. Take the time to fully hear someone out. And show grace and wit and winsomeness in engaging them. When I was a photographer, I got to know a guy who was the editor of Insight Magazine, which is the the lower grade version of Creative Loafing in Atlanta. And uh, and he, he was a total pagan. And, uh, and so he and I got to be friends, and he, he invited us into his home and his family. And he would always get these like really terrible Christian CDs and he'd put them in a box and he'd go, here, you probably like these, um, which I thought was the biggest insult he could have given. Uh, and, so, and so, but he, he recognized that, and he was so blown away. He was like, I can't believe you're okay hanging out with me. I said, man, I love you. I mean, I love you and your family and, and it's, it's been a joy. And so you know where I stand And anytime he'd ask questions about the gospel, we would talk about him. Now, I'd love to tell you that he became a Christian during the time we were friends. He didn't. And maybe you say, well, all that friendship evangelism just didn't get you very far, did it? Well, I don't know yet. Remember, David Brainerd prayed for three of his friends for a long, long time when they become Christians. After he was martyred, some of them years and years after his martyrdom. And so, so it's, it's very important that we try to actually build relationship and show the, the other outside the church that they do bear the image of God and they do matter. There is no evangelism outside of that, really. Um, and so, uh, so you need to be thinking this through. And, and how are you going to answer questions that you have no idea the answer to? You don't know the biblical response to some of these things. What are you going to offer? Many of us maybe know more about apologetics than we do the Bible, or more about systematic theology than we do the Bible. And I think that's troubling. Um, and I think that's the, the, the backwards way to go about it. Don't hear me wrongly. Um, as one who's reading all of Francis Schaeffer's works, I have to appreciate apologetics at some level to take on that task. I do. 
But, but it's, it's very important that I have read the Bible through many times before I go setting off on that journey to try to provide answers when you can get blindsided. And I've seen it happen. Um, we can come with so much fervor that we forget the person and we forget uh, the person of Christ himself in it. So I want to encourage you, every one of us has opportunity with other people to do this whether it's family, whether it's our children, whether it's, it's those who visit our churches, those we work with, those who are our neighbors, this is something we should be intentional about cultivating in ourselves, that we would be able to respond to the questions, the heart questions that people genuinely have, and that we would stop treating them as, um, as if they are lepers, as if they are unworthy to come into our churches if they were redeemed. One of the heartbreaking moments for me I started in youth ministry, uh, middle school to be exact, which probably makes a lot of sense to some of you. And uh, there was this one young man named Mitchell who dressed in all black, and, and he used to bring like a copy of Satan's Bible with him to church and that Anton LaVey wrote. And so um, one day I said, uh, I said, hey, have you, have you actually read that, Anton LaVey, Satan's Bible? He's like, yes, yeah, some of it. What do you know about it? I was like, I've read it. I said, and here's the best part. When you get to the middle, Anton's going to say, you're an idiot. You're an idiot for buying this book because the whole thing is garbage. He no more believes in Satan than a man on the moon. But his whole project is to try to get people to follow him, and it's working just great. He was mad as he could be. He got to the middle, you know, and found it. And so we started meeting and talking about the gospel and philosophy. And one of the things that derailed the, the situation was there was a group of people in our church who demanded that Mitchell not wear all black. Okay, um, And of course, we're talking Columbine era, so there was that whole fear thing that if you wear all black, that you're probably trench coat mafia or whatever it is. And so uh, they wanted him not to wear all black, and they wanted him to behave in certain ways. And, they would, and he even asked me, he said, do you guys have like a pep rally to get me saved every once in a while? Because people basically ignore my existence for months at a time, and then all of a sudden, all of these folks come up, and they're nice to me, and when I don't do what they want me to do, good, they go back to being mean to me. And that breaks my heart that Mitchell Weaver was treated that way. He and I stayed friends for years and years and years, and he would, we would correspond about philosophy and all the stuff he was kind of getting into, and, um, and, and he always, always had a deep respect. And again, I'd love to say he's a Christian today. I don't know that he is. Um, and so I, I hope one day that he'll come up to me in heaven and say, hey, thanks for telling me about Anton LaVey's Satan's Bible not being true and trying to point me to the right one. And so, um, so often I think we just don't, we don't think about how we're treating people. And Paul here says, make sure, make sure you're very thoughtful about this. Make sure that the resurrection is on full display in you as you deal with those outside the church. Listen to what R.C. Lucas says about this passage. He says, Paul evidently believes that opportunities for response and explanation are to be found everywhere. And that is true, by the way. They're everywhere. They're all around you. And, and oftentimes how we live oftentimes sparks whether or not someone asks us in the first place. But they're all around us. They're everywhere. For everyone is looking to discover answers about life and its meaning. And Paul evidently thinks that believing Christians should be found everywhere too, ready to take up these frequent opportunities. So how are you displaying the resurrection thoughtfully uh, the resurrection to, to thoughtfully engage those outside the church? It's a great question for us to meditate on and think through because to not do this 
is actually fail to understand the reason you were saved. You're not just saved so that you can be a child of God. You're saved so that you will display the glory of God in a fallen world. Now, being that our church is almost 80% introvert, all of you cringe deep in your soul because what you just heard me say is we're going to go out in Marietta Square and we're going to pass out tracts and we're going to confront people. That's not what I just said. And, and for those of you who are introverts, please don't hear me say that this is all about you saying a bunch of stuff or confronting people. This is just about you loving somebody, which is actually good news for the introverts because you get to do it on a smaller scale, right? This is actually a great introvert passage um, because it says, cultivate deep, get to the questions. Because again, God doesn't need you to save everybody. God just needs you, wants you to engage somebody. And we should be doing that. Now, it's from this, our engagement of those outside the church, that we're going to see that we actually have anything to encourage those inside the church. Now, if you would, turn your attention back to the reading of God's word, verses 7 through 18, <clears throat> as we'll see the display of the resurrection toward those inside the church. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that we may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Bar Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of, of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And, see to Archip and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, what we see here is, is a bunch of names that you may or may not be familiar with. Some of them do show up in many of Paul's other letters. I'm not going to take us through all those things. Um, but if you have any access to Bible software, you can just punch their name in and see all the places where they show up. But the first name, Tychicus, probably shows up the most over the most letters. And so um, he longs for those inside the church to hear how the resurrection is playing out in all of their lives. Notice, he's wanting them to hear about what's going on for those who are in prison. How much more should we have to testify of for those who are not? And he wants that testimony to be very encouraging to those inside the church at Colossae. Now, he mentions another church, Laodicea, which many scholars think is, is probably Ephesus that this is a, a reference to the Ephesian letter. I don't have time to unpack why that would be so, um, but there's, there is enough evidence that suggests that's probably what it is. If it's not, we don't have the letter to the Laodiceans. Uh, it's been lost. 
in God's providence. But what he's doing here, notice he keeps encouraging them based on what these, these men are doing in reference to the gospel, how they are continuing to share the gospel and there's fruit being born. He mentions Onesimus, which you would know from the book of Philemon, the freed slave. Remember how he addressed both slaves and slave owners, uh, which means they were both in the church. What a radical and amazing thing that would have looked like in their time and their century. Um, he mentions uh, a couple of other folks as well. Aristarchus, who shows up quite a bit in the book of Acts. Um, and then we see Mark. One of the things he says in receiving Mark or John Mark, we know that they had departed and this in and of itself would have been an encouraging picture of the reconciliation of the gospel because that means that he and John Mark were restored to one another and the church were, were, was to receive him as not an enemy of Paul, but a brother in Christ. And so all of these things should have been encouraging, but probably most of all was the encouragement he gives from Epaphras, who helped plant the church at Colossae. Remember, Paul didn't plant this church. Epaphras did. And it seems like at this point that Epaphras must be in prison with him. But Epaphras is struggling on their behalf in prayer, that they would grow and mature. That's the single heartbeat of any minister of the gospel, that our churches would mature and grow, that our people would grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ. And again, that does not happen passively. Uh, the whole point of being a Christian is to grow further and further and further into the image of Christ. And for too many of us, we are not engaging in anything that is actually helping do that. You may say, yeah, but I show up for worship, and worship is an important thing for you to show up for. Do not hear me wrongly. But I've said it many times over, that for you to sit here and listen to a monologue, many of you are having trouble just staying awake. You're not getting out of this what, what's going to make you a strong disciple. You're not. You can't do it this way. You have to engage the material. You have to look at how does, this, how does this play out in the specific places where I live, work, play, sleep, all of those things, right? And so if you're not engaging in something beyond this, chances are you are not maturing in the faith very well. Now, I'm not saying that you have to do only the things we've offered you. You've got to be engaging somewhere, right? And so I, I, as long as it's biblical and it's, and it's drawing you to the person and work of Christ, I have very little truck with it. But everybody should be involved in something outside of Sunday morning in, in terms of engaging their faith, talking about it, practicing it, etc. Now, some of you just heard me say, more activity, more activity, because we're suburbanites and we love to jump into the swiftly flowing stream. No, actually what I just said to you may actually be less activity, less activity. Because some of the things that you may be engaged in aren't worth the time. They're not worth, they're not gonna give you the return on the investment that you truly need in any sort of eternal way. And so you may need to rethink some things. We talk about the Lord's Day Sabbath here an awful lot. And that's one of the great places where you actually can slow down long enough to, to, to be encouraged, to be encouraging to others, to plan well how you will use your time. If you don't avail yourself of that, that's, that's not my fault. And I'm not the one who's, who's actually going to cause you any problems with that. It, it comes with its own curse, the curse of just being bedraggled. And so we need to, to think about how we live our lives. And we need to think about what are we investing in, what kind of things. And when you do get involved in a discipleship group, do you even bring your book? 
Do you even, have you even read more than 20 minutes ahead of time to interact with the material? Are, are, you, are, you, are you engaging it enough? Are you just trying to get through it so you can check it off and be done with it? Or are you actually getting, getting into the cultivation phase of discipleship? Now, many of you, I know that's strong words and you, you feel kind of beat up about it. Well, Again, it's not because I'm saying it, because I don't know. I'm not going to come and, and, you know, we're not going to start the church discipline process with the least discipled, right? It's not going to be like a law court up here, like I'm slapping communion out of your hands. Um, be encouraged that, that the Lord loves you enough to say what you're doing is not going to get you where you need to go. That's actually a good thing, right? It's not a bad thing. So what we see here is these men have much to be testified of, and that is an encouragement to the church, not just Colossae, but also the church that meets at a woman's house named Nympha, um, which that in and of itself probably has some radical connotations. But this, that they are going through this, that they are doing, this engaging of outsiders by them is, is actually encouraging to the church. Mo Leverett preached one of the best sermons I've ever heard, and that's subjective, uh, called The Lost Art of Redemptive Suffering. And in that sermon, one of the things he says, he says, look, I don't know that heaven's going to be like this, but what if part of heaven is us standing around telling stories about how the Lord worked in and through us toward outsiders and other circumstances? And how will it be for you when you've got nothing to say? But see, I would actually say of Mo's statement, it's not about heaven, it's about now. There's many ways in which the church is not being encouraged. She's not being built up. The next generation is not being encouraged by what they see us doing or not doing. And so it matters actually more on this side of heaven than it will on the other side. So how are you living this out? And then how are we engaging it with each other? Are you availing yourselves of the opportunities to get to know one another? Are you availing yourselves of the opportunities and, and maybe making some opportunities to get to know one another and share your story and be encouraged? There's so much, there, there is, it is unbelievable uh, the powder keg of giftedness that this church is sitting on and how much of it is dormant. I'm thankful for all that is going on. I really am. Don't, don't hear me. This is not a grand critique. But there's just some ways in which we're, we're, we're kind of going about things that, that are not going to be encouraging to our kids. Uh, they're not going to be encouraging to, that, to, to the next generation. They're not going to be encouraging to people outside the church. So we need to think about that and process that. And let the Lord, let the Spirit do its work in us to shape us into the image of Christ. And so Paul concludes and asks, remember my change. Remember that I am in prison. One of the saddest passages in all of Scripture. I hate reading it because it just it, it feels like something that I might end up saying someday. And one of the names that's mentioned here, Demas, is one of the ones who falls away. Paul says that when he goes to trial, that no one stood with him but Jesus. So all these people that Paul invested in for all these years, uh, toward the end of his life, what happens is the great cutoffness, the great loneliness that oftentimes comes with these types of things. Let's work to not be cut off. Let's work to not be isolated because remember one of the devil's greatest tools is discouragement and isolation. So let us, let us help each other to not get trapped in those places. So as we conclude the book of Colossians here, my hope 
is that what you will be encouraged in is a couple of things. One is that Christ is both supreme and sufficient, and both are necessary for you to understand. And both are necessary for you to apply throughout your life. And then secondly, that the resurrection is a lived reality, not a future reality. The resurrection has already begun. We are already being made new. We are already being transformed into the image of Christ in varying forms and fashions. And that that is to be a lived reality. We are wicked dualists often. We separate the sacred and the secular, and we separate body and soul. We separate spiritual and otherwise in so many ways. It's very important that we realize, no, this is a lived, embodied reality. Francis Schaeffer says every doctrine ought to have some impact on your life, and it does. It's whether or not it's good or bad, and whether or not it's, it's biblical and full. Listen to what R. Kent Hughes says about this passage. <clears throat> he says, in Colossians terminology, the fullness of Christ floods our souls and overflows to others. If the others are believers, their lives also overflow. There is mutual recognition and mutual refreshment and fellowship with believers. So how are you displaying the resurrection to lovingly encourage those inside the church? That's a very important thing because sometimes I think we forget that it's necessary there too, right? Because how many of you, this is rhetorical. This is a rhetorical question, everyone. Do not raise your hands. How many of you as parents could really use the encouragement from a parent who's gone before you that it worked out okay? How, how many of you as college students could use the encouragement from others who have made it further than you um, and lived to tell about it uh, that you could use encouragement from them? How many high school students could use encouragement from college students who've been through the same application and waiting and arduous process? How many of you could just use encouragement from somebody else through something that you're going through, but yet you are hiding in plain view, and yet you're, you've not, we're not engaged enough to know who to even talk to? And so how, how are we, as, and I think we're getting better at this, by the way, so I don't, I don't hear it all as bad news. It's not. I think we've improved in this significantly in the last three years. But we can't rest on our laurels and we can't be okay with mediocrity and we can't be okay with just kind of being kind of a redeemed community. We've got to put skin in the game. And so how are you doing that? Because we need it. And as I've told you before, because I get paid to do this, most people don't, they just see it as preacher stories or as some sort of, I have to do it. I'm just trying to keep the tides coming in some kind of way. I'm just trying to keep you above water or something. It's oftentimes not as near as effective as it coming from you and it coming from us in a broader fashion. And many of you are talking about this and we're beginning to see some good things. So I want to be encouraged. We need more people engaging. Are you only showing up when it's your turn to serve? That's not, that's not being a member of a body of Christ. That's just not. And here's the thing. I think that we forget how necessary each and every member of this church is. You are just as important as I am. In fact, maybe more so because of the subtlety. They don't see you coming always. And it's very important that, that, that we engage and recognize that every Sunday that you come, it's important that you be engaged, that you be thoughtful about it, and that you be ministered to. Maybe you come in needing. 
Maybe you come in giving. It cuts both ways, doesn't it? And so how can we be more of a redeemed community in this regard? How can the resurrection be better displayed in us? So the two things that we learn from the end of chapter four is that we are to display the resurrection in our lives thought to thoughtfully engage. I can't say that strongly enough. You need to be thoughtful in your engagement. Thoughtfully engage those outside the church and then second, to lovingly encourage those inside the church. What a powerful thing that, that, that with those two things being, being what we ought be and do, um, and I'm going to try this. Oh, gosh. Isn't pretty at all. Thanks, Zach. <laughs> what a powerful thing that we have communion this morning. That, that the very means by which we can thoughtfully engage those outside the church and the very means by which we can be encouraging to those inside the church is the body and blood of Christ itself. If you're with us this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, wait for lunch. Don't, don't, be a, don't let this be a curse to you. Um, let it pass by. If you're not taking it seriously, bread and juice is not gonna get it done. If, if you are under church discipline, and I don't know of anybody in this category at current, if you're under church discipline from your church, you also need to let it pass by in honor of, uh, of, of that circumstance until it is reconciled. And the third group of people who shouldn't take uh, are those who in their own, and you only know this in your own heart, that you harbor unforgiveness towards someone else. Here's what I mean by that. You think that there's someone else who's unworthy of this table that is so outside the camp that they couldn't come in no matter what Jesus has done. If you have that attitude towards someone, you can't take because that was you. You were so outside the camp and there was no way for you to come in but by Christ alone, through faith alone and grace alone. But if you are a professing member and, and, and uh, a professing member of the body of Christ and you know you need this, maybe you haven't had the best week, maybe you haven't had the best morning, maybe you haven't had the best year, you need this nourishment. And so you should take in great faith knowing that it is what Christ has done, not what we do, that matters in this table. And so um, when you receive the bread, hold it, and we'll take all together as family. Um, and then we'll do the cup, and we'll stand for that, and we'll take all together as family. And then we'll have one last song and a couple of uh, announcements and then the benediction. But do remember how on the night that, that Christ was last with his disciples. Um, last in terms of before his crucifixion. He took a common element. He took something that they would have always with them, bread. Something they would see often. Something that would remind them often of his work on their behalf. And he held it up. He says, this, this is my body and it is broken for you. And in those words, what he was saying was so profound because what he was saying is, is that... Um, is that your sin, the totality of your shame and guilt is going to be done away with. That you would no longer have to walk under the weight of that burden. And in addition to that, that the fullness of God's wrath on behalf of that sin would be satisfied in his broken body. So that what you're partaking of is freedom. Freedom in Christ, freedom from shame and guilt, which by the way, if we're honest, so many of us, that is what creeps back in like a dark mist upon our minds and our hearts and our souls. 
So I want to encourage you as you take this morning to pray. If that mist has crept in on you, if you are struggling with shame and guilt because you haven't been the person you want to be or the person that somebody else wants you to be or the person that you think you ought to be, take and eat knowing that in Christ, you are all that you will ever be and it is so glorious that you are welcome before the very throne of God to receive all that you need with mercy and grace. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that you've given us the broken body. Thank you that it means so much. Thank you that it delivers us from shame and guilt and the power of death. And we no longer have to be afraid to come to you or before you, that your longing for us to stand before you in grace has been accomplished in Christ. I pray that as we take this morning, that our faith would be nourished, that we as your people would be nourished in such a way that shame and guilt would be pushed back by the light of the gospel of Christ. I pray if there's those of us who are struggling with thinking that you are mad at us, that you are displeased with us in some form or fashion because maybe you aren't answering prayers the way we would like for you to, may we also be nourished and emboldened to continue patiently to wait for you and also to continue to actively cultivate discipleship. May this small piece of bread that means so much to us be a blessing to your people this morning. In Christ's name, amen.